0: My name is Chad. I host and produce a show called Radio Lab, and uh, we use a lot of music in the program. Uh, The purpose of this panel is to talk about how music is used, uh, well, how we use music, how it's used in general, and sort of ways of thinking about about the role that music plays in your narrative. And I'm not gonna so much tell you how to do it, because I don't really know myself exactly. Um, It's more of an intuitive thing. I think we all have our intuitions about how to marry music to words and in general I would say go with your intuitions um this is more for when your intuitions are letting you down and you're stuck and you need some maybe a structured way of thinking about what music does in a story um so I pulled a bunch of uh, ideas uh some of which we came up with most of which are from other smarter people and how they use music in their work and uh And I'm going to see if I can um, synthesize it all into something coherent. Uh, Stop me at any point if something doesn't make any sense. Um, First, though, I wanted to play something from our show. Uh, We're a sciencey and ideas kind of program. And basically what we do is we we look for big ideas that are percolating up in the sciences. And we try and humanize those ideas. And music is a really powerful way that we've found to do that. Uh, I'll play you something from our current season, an introduction to a show on, uh, on an idea called emergence, which is the basic principle, well, it's pretty self-explanatory, but it's the basic principle that there are many groups in the world, maybe this is even the norm, which have no leader, they have no conductor, and somehow these groups organize themselves from the bottom up and form amazingly complicated societies. How does that all work? And that was sort of the question we were going to embark upon. And we started the show with this four minute intro. I think it's a good sort of uh, way to start this panel.
1: You're the- listening to Radio, Radio Lab. Lab.
0: I'm Jad Abumrad. This is Radio Lab. And I am Robert Quillwich. And let's begin today with something deceptively familiar.
1: Fireflies are. Something that we have all loved as kids, right? Catching them in the backyard, putting them in in a jar and watching them glow. So we don't tend to think of them as anything all that mysterious. Well, they do one thing very nicely, which is flash on and off.
0: That's all fireflies
1: do, flash. But what interests Steve Strogatz, a mathematician at Cornell University, is that there are places in the world... Not here, but in, in Southeast Asia, in Malaysia or Thailand. ...where fireflies don't just flash randomly, like we're used to. They somehow... Flash together. There are enormous congregations of fireflies along riverbanks. How many? It could be tens of thousands. Tens of thousands. Tree after tree, extending for literally miles along the rivers, all flashing in sync like a Christmas tree. Rows and rows of Christmas trees all wired together going off. And it's one of the most hypnotic and and spellbinding spectacles in nature because you have to keep in mind it is absolutely silent. Hmm. Picture it. There's a riverbank in Thailand in the remote part of the jungle... You're in a canoe, slipping down the river. There's no sound of anything, maybe the occasional, you know, exotic jungle bird or something. And you're looking and you just see, whoop, whoop, whoop with thousands of lights on and then off, all in sync.
2: Imagine all the trees, as far as you can see, are all brilliantly lit and then totally dark. Brilliantly lit, total darkness. All of them in sync. Yeah, and no Westerner had ever seen this site. There was folklore, there was the stories about it, but nobody had gone in and photographed and captured samples.
0: Well, not until 1965.
2: This was
1: done by John Buck. John Buck, B-U-C-K. One of the great... Going into the records, I'm 92. Buck and his wife, Elizabeth. Elizabeth masked Buck. Went to Thailand and uh, captured bags full of male fireflies. You could just reach up and shake the branches and the fireflies. It would rain down. And brought them back to their hotel room. And we turned off the lights. We turned them loose. And saw that the fireflies flitted around on the walls and ceiling. They flew back and forth. Flashing randomly. Elizabeth lay on the floor of the room. I was just tired. John stayed awake, and he was the one who saw. Within a few minutes, little groups, duos and trios, formed. And after a while... The fourth one would join in. They got closer and closer together, and then finally they were... The whole room was blinking in perfect harmony. He was excited the next morning when he told me about it. (laughs) 20 years later, John Buck is
0: still asking this question. Well,
1: what is going on?
0: Because no one knows.
1: There are literally
0: 10 theories. What seems to be clear, says Steve, is there is no one firefly that makes it all happen. It just happens on its own. Order materializes out of nothing. And that has him puzzled.
1: How can order come out of out of disorder. I and mean, this is what the creationists love to talk about. And it's because they don't understand, and neither do we. This, this is the big, big mystery of science. I think bigger than black holes or bigger than superstrings. I mean, science has had hundreds of years of success since the time of Galileo and Newton from reductionism, from looking at the smallest parts, whether they're genes or atoms, whatever. That's great. We need to understand the individuals. But that's not enough.
0: Obviously, we're not just talking about fireflies anymore. Today on Radio Lab, we will...
1: I'll stop it there.
0: Um... It's that's generally how we open the show and we go on to talk about in the emergence program cities and the neurons inside our own brains and that's just sort of a sound rich way that we can kind of drop people into the spirit of the idea before we actually get too brainy on them um, my general philosophy about music and I'll talk a little bit more about what you just heard um, is this and I guess this goes beyond music but really your job as producers of radio uh, this kind of radio radio which is not Purely news is to connect the outside of your story, the exterior of your story, to the story's interior. Like your story has an outer life, maybe that's the plot, and your story has an inner life, which is the interior images and monologues and feelings of the character. So, in the case of what you just heard, this all sprung from an interview that was done with this mathematician, Steve Strogatz. He is a mathematician. We do a lot of interviews with people who are math kinds of people. They kind of live by the numbers. So when we find these moments, which are where they somehow give you an entry point into their emotional mind, it's so important for us. Like that's what we are always looking for. And it happened and it was very fleeting when we, when we interviewed uh, Steve Strogatz. I'm gonna play you the raw tape because maybe this will give a sense of how the process, we can start to talk about how, how do you do that, how do you can go out to end, you know, it's kind of an esoteric idea. But my process is basically, it starts with the tape, obviously. Here is the raw tape for what you just heard. It's
1: about 30 seconds. It's one of the most hypnotic and, and spellbinding spectacles in nature, because you have to keep in mind it is absolutely silent. I mean, picture it. There's a riverbank in Thailand in the remote part of the jungle. You're in a canoe slipping down the river. There's no sound of anything, maybe the occasional you know, exotic jungle bird or something. And you're looking and you just see, I mean, I can't do it, it's radio, but it, it, you see whoop, 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 with thousands of lights on and then off, all in sync. So that's it, right?
0: There's a moment in that tape where he lets you see his interior thought process there. He, it, it just, it's, it, he catches himself before he really lets that, thought go too much farther. And so the job of music in the intro was to prolong that, pro, sort of take that moment, before he says, ah, oh, I can't do it for radio, but to sort of, obviously we edit that out, because we're gonna do it for radio. Um, <laughs> but to take that moment and, and extend it, and make it into a minute and a half introduction, a very sort of experiential situation. Now how, how I sort of think about this, the way that I found that's easiest to go about doing this, is to make lists is to basically sort of listen to your tape. Now, if your tape has an outside and your tape has an inside, which is what I just said earlier, um, to, to, to make lists of what you're hearing on the inside of the tape. Now, there's a moment where Steve starts to kind of see things. He sees flashing lights. He starts to, he has this wonderful rhythmic sound that he makes, he's almost hearing things. Um, and he's feeling a moment of wonder a kind of, and that's the important thing. It's the, He was feeling a sort of awe. And as a scientist, that's, that's the thing we're always chasing, is the moment of awe where the science, scientist goes sort of out of the empirical mode of thinking and becomes like a child looking at fireflies. And we wanted that moment, and we wanted to, to evoke that moment in music. So what, what I tend to do, and this is a collaborative process that you know, I do with my producer, Alan Horn, and Robert Kralwich, the co host we just wanna talk about what's going on on the inside of the tape and we make sort of, we, we come up with words, just sort of wonder it was a word. Then you scan your music collection, scan the record collection and hopefully the song or a piece of the song or fragment of sound will jump out. In the same way that when you scan uh, a list of printed text with a word in your mind, like the word, I don't know, red. Like red will just jump out of, off the page because you're thinking about it. Or we hope that the same thing will happen when we're looking for the right kind of sound. And then the second part of that process, at least insofar as... Do you have a question? You're referring to the inside and the outside of the tape. What do you mean by that? Well, the outside is the plot, really. It's the thing that the person is talking about. It's the explicit meaning. The inside is the is all the things that might be happening inside the speaker of those words, inside that person's mind at that moment. You want to sort of, I mean, music is so powerful as a way to evoke a feeling, right? And all the feelings the person has, that's what you're trying to get at. To give you kind of a weird example, um, I'll talk more about this in a second. Yesterday at the Third Coast, uh, uh, thingy that was happening here and all the sort of Everyone was uh, greeting each other, and there was music playing really softly. You could barely hear it, and it was a little twinkly, twinkly music. And I was talking with somebody, and all of a sudden I got kind of sad. And I was like, why am I, so, that's weird. And I was trying to create reasons for all of this. And then I realized playing far, far in the background was a piece of music that we've used in one of our pieces to score a moment that was sad. <laughs> and it somehow like got around the kind of defenses. And you got in there and created that feeling. So that's what music does, essentially. Um, and that's what we want to use music to do when you pair it with some words which are very sort of uh, explicit. You want to also give a different kind of meaning with those words. Um, I, I guess what I mean, this is mostly a panel about music, but it, it, to finish the thread on the fireflies, uh, sound and sound design is something that we're really interested in. and. Uh, the way I think about that is I really draw um, from something that Walter Murch did on Transom, which I think is brilliant. He, he talks about, well, maybe this is a good time for me to draw a picture, um, hold on one second. So Walter Murch talks a lot about the difference between music and language, and I'll start to refer to this from time to time, and it usually starts with something that looks like this, which is music over here and language over here, Language is words that uh, mean something. They're kind of arbitrary syllables that we, the village has decided it means. Like, this is chair, That the chair part of it is arbitrary. Music doesn't have any kind of translation associated with it. It's just, there's no real meaning to music. It just kind of is and embodies things. So you know this is the sort of basic kind of axis upon which all these schematics get drawn. But Walter Murch has this great thing with sound design, which is that, let's say like this, that you have more like linguistic, sound effects, which are like the knocking, you know, like knock, knock, knock kind of sound effects, which are, they just basically mean something. And then you have more musical sound effects. And so his idea, and I agree with this, is to, when you're using sound design along with music, to create, have a balance, a balance between Uh, more linguistic sound effects and more musical sound effects. What I mean by that is, in the the example you just heard, there was uh, a bird, very literally a bird, that goes squawk, which is he says bird, and then you hear bird. Um, He says, well, imagine you're in a canoe, and then you hear a sound of water. Very literal sound effect. Uh, There's also the sound that we chose to use for the fireflies, which is, I don't know that fireflies make any sound. You know, I mean, they blink. And, And so we we were then sort of forced to kind of evoke that, which was not a literal thing, but you hear it, and it's kind of unmistakable. I think these are, these are fireflies. And those sounds are just these right here, which are not linguistic at all. They're very musical. That's the firefly. And then there's this. So that, those are more musical sound effects. And so if you have an, a wide balance between the musical and the linguistic sound effects, somehow the brain kind of can absorb all that and create the picture more. I mean, that's his theory, but I, I don't, he gets very, sort of, um, very, uh, much more nuanced about his theories, and I just kind of take it. Did you
2: create those, or did you, like, cut them from music,
0: or? Uh, they were, in part, uh, it's, it's sort of a fine line. I mean, they were taken from, a. there is, a, there is some original source in there somewhere. I can't even remember where it came from, but they get sort of processed, and boosted, and EQ'd, and filtered, and then they become just these little, like, percussive, things that we just then scored along with the music to create the Fireflies. In any case, um, I don't want to spend too much time on sound effects because I, I think music is more interesting as a, as a thing to talk about. Um, in trying to figure out the basic question of how, what does music do for the story that you're working on? Um, I, I got obsessed with this one clip of tape that we use in another program of ours. And that clip led me to think about This American Life a lot and and the ways in which they use music. But I want to play you this one little bit of tape. It's from our stress program. And it's a story told by a guy named Colby Hall about this little adventure he has. It's just the first little bit of the story. Uh, And there's something really weird that happens when the music comes in that was completely unintentional. And it led me to kind of try and figure out what that was. So here's the, the tape. Colby, tell me what you had for breakfast so I can set the levels.
3: All right, this morning I had uh, two hard-boiled eggs. I
0: met Colby Hall at a party, actually overheard him telling the story you're about to hear. It's an amazing story. So I asked him to come in and tell to us okay. in the studio. Now, if you are squeamish, you may want to consider turning the radio down for about seven minutes. How's that sound? Sounds good to me. And in your headphones? Good. All right, cool. All right, Colby, let me start by asking you, at what point in the story did you realize you were in big trouble, that uh, your life was changing?
3: Well, when someone said, get a tourniquet. Fourth of July weekend up in Vermont. Doubles tennis, foothills of the Green Mountains, barbecues, beer, lake. It was perfect in every single way.
0: So that's the beginning. It's really short. There's, a, I mean, first of all, what's the first word you, when you think of what you just heard, what's the word you remember? Right, okay, so that, that's, I mean, on a sort of obvious level, music is acting as a kind of yellow highlighter pen right there, highlighting tourniquet, right? But there's something even stranger that I, I couldn't quite figure out, like, how to talk about that happens when, when, you, when that music comes in. Like, there's some, it, the, whole, the whole character, the whole nature, I should say, of the story completely changes, and I finally figured it out because um, someone handed me the, this American Life comic book, which talks about it in a very specific way. But basically, when the music comes in, it's like, like if you can imagine Jad the interviewer and Colby Hall the interviewee sitting over there, and then you're the audience where you are now, and Jad the producer is sitting right here, and there's a sort of a little trio that's present. The moment the music drops, it's like Jad the producer turns to you, the audience, and says, look, we all know what's going on here, Right? you're listening to a story, I'm going to tell you a story. We're both comfortable with that. And then we go back to, to looking at those people over there. There's something weird that happens in how music frames the experience of listening. All of a sudden, we're pulled out of the image inside the picture, and we see the frame around it. And uh, Ira's phrase, which I think is really apt, is that you see the frame around the picture. Like, music is the frame around the picture. There's something weird. Music just does that. It creates... It creates It lets the listener know where they are, where they stand in proximity to what they're listening to. The other thing that seems to happen is that Colby Hall over there, the guy who's telling the story, gets bigger. Like he grows in size and he becomes not just some guy who had an experience, but like some actor in an opera or in a fable. Like he just becomes larger than life, realer than real. Something about the way music. I, I can't explain it beyond that. It's just, it's just like the, the, the one thing that this American Life does so successfully. And I think this is where they've been most clever with their music use: is that they 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 make every they they frame the experience so wonderfully. That's why they and we in turn have sort of stolen this from them. Always seem to drop the music in right away, within the first thirty forty seconds. The music makes an entrance. It might not be a sort of big fanfare kind of entrance. Maybe it comes in low, you know, between you know two words. And it's like at that moment, phew, the story becomes different. It's, it's a self-conscious meta-event. You're listening to a story. They know you're listening. You know they know you're listening. You know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's, like, it's a very sort of useful tool to, 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 a way to talk to your listeners and communicate. The other thing that um, well, This American Life does something really interesting, which I want to talk about more and then play some other examples. I'm going to play you a one-minute piece of radio that I took almost arbitrarily from This American Life. I was looking for something that was very... Ordinary is not the right word, but very typical. And it's not the sort of, oh, I'm going to start crying kind of moment. It's just, you know, it's just sort of where the rules of how they do things are very apparent. And it turns out that um, Amy O'Leary over there, who we, I work with, actually scored that moment. I just determined this five minutes ago. So maybe I'll, I'll, ask, I'll ask you a question, Amy. I don't know. So in any case, here it is. It's very short. Um, It sounds simple enough, but actually it's not. So I'll talk about why I think it's not in just a second.
4: Some years ago, I was a contributing editor to a national magazine of men's fitness and adventure, where I wrote about food, drink, and cheese, which is a kind of food. In my several years as a professional food journalist, I wrote exactly two stories that the magazine refused to publish. The first was on ultra-hot hot sauces. An example of an ultra-hot hot hot sauce is Dave's Insanity Sauce, which I ate on a little cracker once, and then my head hurt, and then I had to lie down, and then I was crying for a day or so. Dave's is actually on the milder end of the ultra-hot hot hot sauce spectrum. There is an entire category of ultra-hot hot sauces that promises death. I recognize that death is a part of life. Still, I could not bring myself to endorse death by ultra-hotness, which is perhaps why my magazine found my piece quote-unquote, overly gay. All right, so I'll stop it there. Um,
0: I think that that's a very actually subtle and nuanced use of music. It doesn't really sound like it on the surface. Um, And uh, first of all, the music enters after the word hot sauce so again it's like highlighting the word hot sauce it turns out the story is not about hot sauces at all this is just an intro to a much longer piece but hot sauce the word lifts as a result of the music it's a little pointer um, then it posts after I ate a cracker with this hot sauce on it and made me cry so post goes for six seconds six seconds seems to be an important number and, um, not, sim- and not just how they use music but I don't know there's some kind of deep architecture to our brains that has something to do with six seconds. I don't know. That all, like that rides for six seconds, goes under. The next, the next bit of text happens, which is, um, this is a whole category of hot sauces, a category I don't agree with. Then the music fades out. And right as it finishes the fade, you hear overly gay. So it's a really, if you think about it, if you think about a piece in terms of chapters, even just this one-minute example. You could, you could really, if you wanted, break it into four chapters. There is chapter one. Um, I used to write for a food magazine. I wrote a piece about hot sauce. Music enters, functions almost as a comma, comma. Chapter two, um, this is a particular wait, no, no, Chapter two is I ate, the, I ate this hot sauce on a cracker. It made me cry. Music goes up, six seconds, period, right? Chapter three, A whole category of hot sauces that that advocate death via ultra-hotness, I do not agree with this. Music fades, goes out. Right at the moment it goes out, you hear, my magazine thought I was overly gay. There's something really interesting that always happens when the music fades out. The next thing you hear is the the thing you pay attention to. Now, when it comes in, that's a pointer to pay attention. When it goes up, it's a kind of a breath, like a period or an ellipse. When it le- when it goes out, uh, it's uh, a cue again to pay attention. Um, this is something I call musical punctuation. You know, it's not trying to manipulate you emotionally. It's trying to divide the narrative into sections. Here, you have a little block of text. All of a sudden, it becomes four mini mini blocks of text that are punctuated with commas, periods, and then maybe another comma or whenever it fades out you're told to pay attention. Um, it's a very, very successful thing that they do which makes pieces very easy to listen to. Because you're you're being given the piece in little dollops. The music is is, is sort of segmenting it into bite-sized chunks. Um, did I get that right, Amy? I did, sure. Okay. <laughs> it's much more clear than I can
4: explain. It so well.
0: Okay, all right. If there's anything else that you were going for, I don't know.
4: I mean there's always a trick of tone of, like matching the tone to to the piece. I mean I, I was telling Jad that actually I, I tried to do something that was kind of risky that was totally rejected with that same piece of um, piece of, of script where I actually tried classical music at first. Like sweepy violins like hot sauce and death and that was that was actually the, the harder challenge of that was
2: finding something that sort of you know was light and playful but didn't overwhelm it.
0: Right. 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 There is an emotional tone that's being established there. Um, but I think, you know, what I what I would choose to focus on is the is the use of music as a as a punctuational device. Um I'll play you one other piece which uses music in the same way in a different mood, in a different style entirely. This is a piece by Pike Melanosky, which he produced for The Next Big Thing, which is uh, I think it's structured around the poem Thirteen Ways to See a Blackbird. I think that's what it's called. Look but yeah, thirteen ways of looking at a blackbird. So there are thirteen little stanzas or, or sections that are divided each by little tiny um, bits of music. So little, little sort of audio page turns happen in between each of the 13 ways. And uh, I think he does this really successfully. I'll play it in a couple of minutes.
2: This is a poem by a guy named Wallace Stevens. He wrote it about 85 years ago. Um, he was a, uh, a businessman. He worked for an insurance company. He lived in Connecticut. And he he also wrote poems, and he became quite famous, actually. And this poem, this poem is called 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. Shall we... Shall we begin? Yeah? Number one.
0: Among twenty snowy mountains, the only moving thing was the eye of the blackbird. It's winter, and it's Christmas, with all the snow. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs>
2: and so the only moving thing is that why is nothing else moving?
0: In the poem, it feels like you're in a cemetery. Mm-hmm. Because, um, since no one's there, it feels like only skeletons are there.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, suppose we just try and write our own little poem. You don't have to rhyme. Our own little poem. But what I'd like you to do is we're going to pretend that we're writing a poem called 13 Ways of Looking at a Tree. And I want you to do this stanza, something similar, not exactly the same, but something similar. Among 20 snowy mountains, the only moving thing was the eye of the blackbird. But use a tree instead. You got it? Mm -hmm. Give it a try.
3: Among the forest, there was only one tree moving because a squirrel had bumped into it. Rodney. It was one sunny day. The trees were moving up and down, floating in the air. You could feel the fresh wind coming towards the tree, and it was shaking all around.
0: I'll stop it there. Um, there's another example of musical punctuation. Um, the music gradually has emotional content. It's sliding you into the mood of the poem as, as you hear more and more of these little um, mini sections. But it's really just breaking up text is what it's doing. It's breaking up scene. There's also something that he's doing here, which um, I guess I would call quotational, like wrapping certain bits of of, of um of the words in quotation marks, which is to, in a sense, lift them and distinguish them from the other speakers. So there are places there where it's like, if you were to imagine this in cinematic terms, it's like the camera's on the class and then the camera zooms in, you know, and it zooms into one face. It's changing the point of view of of the image there by sort of underlaying not just um, the gaps, but actually putting music underneath the whole voice so in a sense, it's lifting it into a new space, which I think is very successful in that piece. So I guess going back to the diagram for a second. Right, okay, this is sound effects up here, so let's listen to music. This is more music, like pure music. Down here. Language music. So let's put musical punctuation right here. More sort of on, it's more on the leaning toward language, but not so much toward emotion. As we think about the more sort of manipulative and more emotional uses of music, um, I wanted to again pull in uh, Walter Murch, the uh, fantastic film editor and legend, and real sort of so instructive to how we use music and radio, um, and play you a little clip of. Uh, the Godfather, just a sound, a really interesting scene, um, and to talk about, I think it's very instructive as as we think about like when is when do we go too far with music, like what's appropriate, and then what's too far, how do you sort of draw that line between the two? Um, he does it in a really interesting way. I'm going to play you the uh, just the sound from the restaurant scene in The Godfather. I don't know if you all have seen the movie. Um, it's basically three guys at a table. Al Pacino, this is his first kill, I think, and uh, it's completely silent for most of the scene. It's like the, it's so freaking tense, and it's been tense for like five minutes. The tension just keeps ramping up, but there's no music. Um, you'll hear a train sound, which is an interesting choice, which I'll talk about in a second, that happens in the middle of the scene. It's not something you really notice when you're watching it, but you hear it loud and clear when there's no picture. And then Al Pacino st- stands up, she, uh, shoots the guy, runs out, throws the gun, and then you hear the music. So l- here it is.
2: Sei italiano come tu padre? Tu padre sta male. And tu stai meglio. Ricciamo un di un nuno. E mettiamo tutto a posto. Steve staria. Si deve finire.
0: So he just shot the cop, and now he shot the uh, the other guy. <laughs> he fell down. Now he's running out, and he's gonna throw the gun right there. So there's so much that's interesting about that scene, just purely in terms of of the choice of music, when to introduce that music. Uh, why is there this sound of a train that's so loud? And they, I mean, if 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 the if that were a real sort of in order for a train sound to be that loud in real life, this, the restaurant would have to be on the tracks practically. But yet he uses it again in this sort of as a musical sound effect, as as how I think of it, as like a sound. Metaphor, not so much as a sort of literal thing. Uh, and, it, and in a way, it takes the kind of tension of a train passing and transposes it onto that scene. I know that, I mean, there's this one moment in the ice storm, sort of get for a tangent for a moment, where the train is stopping and it's the end of the movie and it's, it's been a sort of long, kind of torturous, sort of, you know, someone died even, and there are the sound of bees, they inserted the sound of bees as the train is slowing down. You don't notice it. But somehow the sound is used as a metaphor. And so he uses the train that way as a, as to kind of convey some kind of tension. Then he shoots, uh, Al Pacino shoots um, the two guys, runs out, throws the gun. There's been a big buildup in the movie about throwing the gun. Don't, don't hold the gun because they'll see your face. So throw the gun so they won't look at your face. He does that. Then the, the music comes in. Now here's what Walter Murch had to say about that scene, which I think is very instructive. And thanks again to Amy for sending me this clip. Um, The gun hits the ground, and then the music finally comes in. This is a classic example for me of the correct use of music, which is as a collector and channeler of previously created emotion, rather than the device that creates the emotion. Most movies use music the way athletes use steroids. There's no question that you can induce certain emotion with music, just like steroids build up muscle. It gives you an edge, it gives you speed, but it's unhealthy for the organism in the long run. I think that's brilliant, and it's a perfect um, articulation of, 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 of when to use music and when not to. Um, in other words, there is the collector and channeler of previously created emotion approach, and then there is the musical steroids approach. So I'll put those on the diagram in a second, but I wanted to now play you uh, a, p- a part of uh, that st- that that clip of Colby Hall telling the story of going on vacation and getting on the boat and falling off the boat and um, sort of how we did it, which in light of this quote made perfect sense to me. And again, these are intuitive decisions. You never really think about it in this way, but, but it makes perfect sense uh, after just having heard the merch quote. This is the story of that guy. The preceding three minutes have had no music at all. And then when we get to the central moment of the story, which is a guy falling off a boat, screaming, hey, I fell off. No one can hear him. The boat backs up. And he sees the propellers coming toward him. It's the central moment of the story. At that moment, the music comes in. And it's a very gentle, subtle, I hope, music that says nothing more than, this is important. Pay attention to this. It's not saying how to feel. It's I think it's not. I hope it's not. What it's all, all it's saying is this is important. Pay attention. And it's giving
3: people permission
0: to feel something. So this is about a one-minute clip.
3: Immediately, like I feel like these punches on my legs, which was the boat propeller. People say living in the moment. Like, you... It's amazing to me how many complex thoughts you have in a split second. Wait, is this happening? Oh my God, it's happening. Wow, this is cutting my legs. I'm trapped. I need to get out of this situation. I'm going to push up. I'm going to go under the boat and let it go over me. Like, that all happened in a split second, and at the same time, you're thinking, like, maybe this will just be a bad injury, or Maybe I'll lose the use of one leg. There's all these sort of weird deals that you make in your head. Like, I don't want to die, so I'll just, you know, be in a wheelchair, or maybe I'll just be really, really injured, or maybe I'll never be able to play basketball again. Maybe I'll just always walk with a limp. You know, the other side of this, this all happened one month to the day of my wedding. We had planned this really, I mean, it was small but beautiful wedding upstate, and uh, you know, I wanted to walk down the aisle. I wanted to have the first dance. And it sounds odd to explain that you're having all those thoughts in that time, but you are. So I come up on the other side of the boat, and I sort of gasp for air, and I say, I'm hurt. It doesn't really hurt like you would think. That was the weird thing. Like, it didn't hurt. It just, uh, I mean, I feel it. Treading water, and my legs are kind of numb. I look up, and my fiancée is on the boat, and she gets up, and she sees me, and she can see a ring of blood surrounding me and the water up there is so clear that she could see through the water she could see deep red tissue on my legs and big flaps of skin sort of hanging off my legs floating with the motion of the water
0: sorry for that <laughs> um, but there again it's music that, g- that gently comes in it lifts that moment of the story up saying it's italicizing that moment if you will um, it takes a moment which in real narrative time only lasts about a half second. He gets cut, he, let, he goes under the boat, comes up on the other side. In, in, in his mind, a hundred things are happening. So it allows us to go into his mind. The camera is changing points of view again, zooming into sort of his mental space, if you will. And we get to stay there for a little while. And it feels somehow separate from the actual plot. And music does that, um, so I guess you know. Let me write let me just to stay with our our diagram here. Let me write some things. So here's musical punctuation. Here's let's say over here is musical steroids. Here's music as collector.
4: Louder.
0: Sorry, I want to add something to uh, this, which is um leitmotif, which is a word that's not going to mean much to most people, um, but it's something that, that is crucial to film scoring, and it's really interesting and something we can learn a lot from. So leitmotif, I would guess, go right about here, or I don't really know exactly, but put it here. All right, so leitmotif is... Um, it's basically when you assign a little bit of music to a character or to an object or to an idea. The easiest example um, is, uh, dun-nun, 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 and you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's just two notes. Uh, and in fact, in the film, they never actually show the shark, really. They just make the shark appear and then disappear with the music. So that's a leitmotif. The music represents something which is extra-musical which is a shark in this case. So that's light, Leitmotiv is basically a way that film composers have come up with to stitch narrative to music in a really tight way. Um, we don't really do it so much in radio, and my hope is one day the, uh, the economy of radio will expand so that we can get people to compose music for our pieces and maybe think about how we can use music to to convey the emotional life of characters in a leitmotivic sort of sense. But there are some interesting examples of where it's done in a rudimentary way. And I'll play you one now.
4: GM's healthcare deal with auto workers
1: gave Wall Street a boost. The Dow climbed 60 points to finish at 10,348. The S&P 500 was up three. The NASDAQ gained five points to 2070. This is
2: Marketplace. Markets ended neither here nor there today. The Dow Industrials closed down a fraction at 10,216. Bond prices fell. That pushed the yield on the 10 year T note up to 4.46%. And you are listening to Marketplace. The markets kept on moping today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 36 points, one third of 1%, to close at 10,216. And you are listening to Marketplace. I think
0: it's a really f- clever way of using music to convey meaning. Over the years, they've associated those three songs, and there might be more, I'm not sure, um, with with different market moods. You know, the market goes up, they have the happy music, and they sometimes like get all insider y and refer like, oh, today we've got the happy music, the market's doing well. And then, you know, if it's flat, they use the flat music, and if it's down, they use the mopey music. Um, no one really cares, ultimately, of the, uh, the day-to-day fluctuations of the market. So you kind of get all the information you need from the music. The guy's saying bonds, this, that, and you kind of, it's all sort of, because you already know what you need to know from the music. And you know maybe one day they'll just play the music. <laughs> so that's the leitmotif, and it's very clever, and it's very interesting. Um, here's a different one, which isn't quite... Um, so literal but it's one you'll recognize it's introduced by the composer um, which is right. his name's Tony Schwartz
4: have you ever heard railroad train wheels rolling along the rails clickety clack clickety clack and thought about how musical they sound and that a musician could play beautiful music to the rhythm of these wheels well recently I had the privilege of being able to take our country's top jazz clarinetist out into real-life situations and have him improvise against the sounds in these situations.
0: I think you all recognize it, maybe, yes, no? Yeah, that's the leitmotif for Lost and Found Sound. It's the thing that always uh, plays before a Lost and Found Sound piece on NPR. Uh, I think it's really, they're saying a lot with that little choice, I think. They're saying it's kind of haunting sounding, so it feels like you're suspended. They're also saying if you listen to the world a little differently, you might hear music. You might hear things you didn't expect to hear. You know, If you listen to the sound of footsteps, you might hear a clarinet or something, something beautiful in that. And it's about listening differently. It's about stopping and sort of paying attention, which is what Lost and Found Sound is about. And I think they communicate all that very quickly with that choice. And that's why I, I put the introduction there, because I think he's much more explicit with it. Now, leitmotif is something that uh, I got really interested in by doing a, a documentary about Wagner, Wagner's really the guy who created. He did, he didn't so much create it as he put it on the map. And he does some really interesting and complicated stuff with leitmotif by simply taking little bits of musical DNA that represent things, and then twisting and retrograding and torquing and playing with that stuff as a way to let you know what's happening to the character. Even if the character's is offstage, or if they're just standing up there, as they often are in opera, very still and not doing anything, all this light stuff is bombarding you with emotional impressions. Inside that character's mind, he is—he's—he's he's mourning the uh, the death of his daughter. He's doing this. He's doing that. And you know that from the music. I'll play you a clip from uh, *The Ring and I*, uh, which focuses on one particular light motif. Uh, it's it's a leitmotif that, that um, represents an object, a spear. A spear that Votan, the king of the gods, carries around. And it's a symbol of his power. And what happens to it is, is very interesting and kind of moving, so I'll play it.
3: The spear.
4: From that spear motive, you get something like... See, I I can't hear the difference If I deconstruct it for
3: you, you can. Can you give me like a 30 second deconstruction? Sure. The spear motive, let's put it in the convenient key. The scale rhythmic going down. Okay. First thing, let's put it in the major. Then instead of continuing down, let's jump back on ourselves. Then let's slow it down.
4: I
2: see.
0: (laughs) This was an epiphany. The one thing anyone can hear in Wagner's ring is flux unstable music, huge masses of sounds swirling endlessly like waves, and yet inside that flux there is a center. You feel it. Millions of musical cells, multiplying, mutating, make up the 18-hour organism that is the ring cycle. Each cell attached to a character or idea, all these characters and ideas in constant states of change like what we're listening to now, just one of those cells, a spear motive, a symbol of Votan's power and authority, transformed into this. So that's, that's one thing being transformed again and again and again until it's something completely different. And, uh, he does it with every single character. Some, I mean, the people who really love Wagner will, will spend years of their life trying to decode how he uses leitmotif. Um, it's like, it's on par with like the Kabbalah people in terms of how they sort of try and look for meaning in, in the, in the, in the text. And, uh, it's kind, of, it's kind of amazing, and it's, it, it's, it's interesting to me when you, when you sort of abstract it a bit. In radio, we don't do this very, I mean, we, it's not something that we can afford to do. Um, I mean, sometimes at Radio Lab we try and sort of bend and twist and, and degrade the music that we're using and you know, do all these strange filters and effects to it to create that sort of in an artificial sense. Uh, how the music is is in a way, kind of in a gestural sense, reflecting the inner life of the characters. Um, but I think it's interesting to think about what's happened to music as a whole now that we're in 2005, and everywhere we go, we're bombarded with music. I think music itself has gone a kind of leitmotivic association, where certain types of music have become associated with certain types of people, certain types of lifestyles, certain values. Which is which is very much like how little fragments of Wagner's, you know, notes become associated with characters. I don't think we're very good in public radio at realizing the cultural baggage that the, that that is contained in the musical choices that we make. Um, this was made clear to me. Not I mean, just sort of the general power of music to convey notions of culture it was made clear to me. And if you'll indulge me, I want to play a bit of tape from um, an interview I did a couple years back with. Uh, the Muzak Corporation, which is, uh, they're the original inventors of uh, elevator music. And, uh, and after a, a cultural backlash, they reinvented themselves as uh, with what they call audio architects. And what they're hired to do is basically be sort of DJs and marketing execs simultaneously. So they create mixes for, um, for stores to, to play to either attract or, or um, repel certain customers. So uh, here's an interview that I did with them. Uh, I showed up on a day when they were uh, working with a client called Miss Sixty, which is a retail client, I guess. And they were trying to figure out what music matches Miss Sixty, and they're looking at a catalog of a Miss Sixty model.
4: We discuss particular terms and words, phrases that describe who the Miss Sixty woman is and use those words as filters in the creative process.
3: Um, so let's start with the Miss Sixty woman. So Miss Sixty, who is she? Obviously, glamorous. Glamorous. In the catalog, it's very 80s-inspired, bold stylish. colors, very stylish. But she's not pretentious. Sexy. Ahead of the curve. Trendsetter. She's a trendsetter, exactly. She's also the kind of, of woman who would have her own party. And possibly and, DJ. So she's, she's a very much social circle. in the know, very much in the know. Very sexy, but not raunchy. she should be the woman that was drinking can drink martinis, but also... But also drink a beer. Exactly.
4: She's the kind of, of woman who would wear um, a mesh athletic jacket and then put on a, a flowy skirt. So she crosses two styles to create her own style.
0: So that's the marketing end of the equation. They think that they can, they can express all of those things in music. And here's just a sort of fragment of the musical mix, which they made for Miss Sixteen. Anyhow you get the point the, the, what, what they're trying to do basically Is they play that stuff in the store And it's like saying to certain people You, come here You No, you, you know You should Parent, you're not allowed in the the story. It's a way, I mean, it's an entire business notion which is predicated on the idea that music isn't just about feeling. It's about, it's a kind of cultural language. And every choice that we make is saying something about who we are, who we think we are, who we think you are, you the audience. And in our case, in public radio, who we think our characters are in, in our stories. I'm not sure we're always so aware of that. And I think we should be. Because um, we don't, obviously, use music like what you just heard, but we do, we do use this music all the time. I mean, how many stories have we heard with that music in it? And I, you know, sometimes it's the right choice, but I wonder what we're saying about our characters when we choose that music. You know, are we choosing it because they're old? I mean, that's generally how we, that's generally why we make those choices, because we have an older character and we think they're cute, and we kind of caricature them a bit. Now, I, it always seems to be the clarinetty stuff, too. It seems to be like the Benny Goodman stuff, and I wonder why aren't we looking further and finding other kinds of music? I think we should just be aware of it. I mean, there's a, it also goes for this kind of music, which we you know, we use on our show sometimes and other shows use as well. what are we trying to say with that I mean I think it has something to do with what we're trying to say about us about who we are so all of that stuff is sort of outside the scope of your story it um, like I said it, sometimes it's the right choice but I just wonder if we're always aware of, of, of why we're making the choices that we make and so I guess on, on the one hand and I guess I'll, I'll sort of conclude here and we can go to questions I started by saying we should just trust our intuitions and now I guess I'll end by saying we should always question our first idea <laughs> because we, we should just, is that idea contained within the tape or is it an idea that someone else put in our heads? So, do you have any questions?
2: Probably the worst uh, example of that kind of stereotyping people playing is the ethnic stereotyping that goes on even in NPR pieces. They've interviewed an Asian American that played Chinese music. Um, I do a lot of interviews with people from all over the world who like to tie music in, but I've decided that I have no idea what their tastes are and what represents their personality. I let them pick, and it's often very, you know, maybe unexpected choices. And it may not tie in
3: in the way people expect, but it's resulted in some interesting effect. Hmm.
0: It's yeah we, we were talking um, a few of us before about the thing that always seems to happen on, on a particular talk show in New York when a, a, a black person comes on as a guest is that you hear hip hop or jazz, which seems strange to me that that would be the only two choices Richard, you had something
2: have, uh, comment, it seems to me that there's been a generation that um, it, in the, the way the music is used it, it seems like when I' First started doing work the idea was you brought in the music before the person started speaking and then kept it under crossfaded and posted it when they finished or when you were transitioning and now and I I peg it to this American Life the idea is to have silence while the person underneath the person when they're speaking and then punctuating it by bringing in music high. And it just, it hadn't occurred to me until hearing you describe it as well as you have, that there has been a generational, it seems to me, a generational shift. There was a way to do it in the 80s that was right. And now there's a way to do it today that started probably in the mid-90s that is right. The question is, um, well, you're at a station, so it's probably easy for you to go to a library and sift through music to find the ideal cues. What are the
0: recipe well um that's a good question i I usually choose a lot of the music from stuff that I have myself um, so i can't really i can't really i wouldn't ever advise anyone to spend as much music I mean, money on music as I do because it's kind of a sickness um, Some of the best cues that we've ever done i mean some of the best music we' we've, we've chosen are when we were totally stuck and we asked for help you know i i again this is you know part of the joy of being at a station is that you can walk down the hall to the music and culture director and say, you know, I've got a bunch of guys who are stargazing in the parking lot. And I tried the kind of hipster music, and it it just felt like I was trying to say too much about who I was there, and I didn't want to sort of, you know, taint them in that way. But I kind of want to say that they're like, they're doing this age-old thing, this kind of holy, like, looking up thing that the cavemen were doing. And she said, oh, I have just a piece of music. And it was this great um, 16th century, um, I don't even know what to call it, but it was this wonderful sort of melismatic chanting kind of thing. I would have never found that on my own. So I guess guess to sort of of tie this back on itself for a second, when I say uh, question your first assumptions, I guess it means like play it for someone else who doesn't share your musical tastes and see if they feel welcomed by the choice and if they feel like the choice makes sense for the story. I don't know. I wish I, c- I, wish I had better advice than that.
2: Uh, I spend a lot of time talking about music uh, with college students who are in an audio pr- uh, production class. And uh, they have to do a six-minute audio doc the end of the class. And my requirement is, at least I urge them to stay away from familiar music. Because mm-hmm. their, fir- their frame of reference is the stuff that they listen to, and usually not always the stuff that they listen to, sort of like well-known stuff. And I'm kind of curious about that, that process, uh, or whether you struggle with that, you know, the question of using familiar music. And I'm referencing that piece that we heard at the beginning because even though I, I really love the way it's used as punctuation, my first thought was, oh, that's a familiar piece of mm-hmm. Oh, I remember that from the 60s. And, you know, what I sort of talk to my students about is that when you go to a familiar piece of music, it sort of sometimes takes you out of the piece. Right. Your thought is like, oh, that's a familiar... Oh, I know that piece of music. Oh, that's an interesting. Oh, that's clever. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, all those other questions that
0: go on. Yeah. That. I'm just sort of curious about that, that sort of process. Yeah, I mean, we... It's funny, I mean, mentioning This American Life, it's like, I feel like they've, in a sense, copyrighted a whole genre of music that it's difficult for the rest of us to use now. And maybe that's a good thing, I guess. Um, I guess it's just... it's. I mean what I what the way that I've sort of find a way around it is to be very sort of an emotionally analytical and to say what 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 exactly am I trying to say here am I just trying to sort of move the piece along because I feel like the voices are lagging which isn't always the best use of music but you know we we do it people do it uh like or am I really trying to say something about what's happening to this character at that moment and I try my best to find a piece of music that matches that um, I do agree. It's like the, if we hear a piece of music that we all know in a in a in a in a piece of radio, it's like we have all these associations ourselves in our own lives with this piece of music that can sometimes detract from the story that we're listening to at that moment. So I have a sort of policy. I have a almost it, it's not quite um, categorical, but I have a no beats policy with Radiolab. You know, we use uh, be- beady kind of music sometimes, but something about it that just feels so familiar and rote at this point that there's no beats. I also try not to do the whole like um, you know big bandy thing too because I feel like that's kind of suffered the same kind of uh, repetitive um, process. I don't know. We use a lot of... I, uh, I don't know. I, I choose a lot of music... I don't know if this is going to answer your question at all. I choose a lot of music that is very textural and almost incomplete you know like film music that's all that is was either literally used for films or inspired by film scores where there's really very little song structure to it um and you can use it in different ways and it's like um a quote uh something one of the people we work with Sally Hership, said is uh, it's like that like the great models that work for Kmart they're really beautiful but that you don't recognize them later i used music that's has this, that is the same in that way and that it's not it's not recognizable. It's not distinct enough. But it's kind of interesting and, and pretty. Yeah. Amy?
2: You talked about Leib motif, and I was hoping you could have give one or two examples from
3: your show. I mean, it's something I think you do really well about how you use music to, like, cue people into an idea and then the like, it comes back later and you need that same music comes back. Like, could you talk through, like, one story where you've done that? Hmm.
0: I think we did it a bit on your story, actually. Um, Amy just uh, filed a piece for us about going back to visit a painful memory. Um, and there's... It was a sort of a... It's a piece about kind of getting back in touch with it, your childhood version of yourself, but as an adult, and sort of looking back on that on that version of yourself and wondering why you did certain things and... If you can make amends, and so we we, we started out with music that was almost uh, like a lullabyish, kind of um, evoked a kind of childhood nostalgia, and then there were moments when um, when we brought it back, where we stretched the hell out of it, so it became a kind of uh, there became an instability that was introduced into the music. After as you were sort of closer to the point of dealing with those things the music became a little uh, frayed and degraded by virtue of the processing we, that it underwent. And so in a, in a kind of artificial sense, that's like treating the music as a leitmotif and that the music says something about what you're going through at that point, you the, you the protagonist of the story. Um, that's one example. I can't think readily off the top of my head of, I mean. Like-
2: Answering the question that's it mm-hmm. comes back if these I mean, if you're talking about like there's a way in the eighties that maybe music was using maybe a way in the nineties that we say. I feel like that's sort of like the next
0: like frontier is like using it tied to ideas in that way. Yeah, I agree. I mean it we're also in a in a in a position that's a bit luxurious in that we I mean, we work really hard, but we actually we're not on the air that much. So we can spend this kind of time, you know thinking sort of abstractly about, well, what should we do with, you know, how can we, you know, transform this bit of music when most people don't have that kind of time. So that, I think that's important to say. Uh, but yeah, I think that's what, that's what wakes me up in the morning is figuring out how to use music in a way that, that is interesting and, and that, that can communicate something about the characters and, that, um, you know, tying music to ideas and to questions and, you know, sort of using music in these grand gestural ways to evoke something about what's happening in, at that moment.
4: Uh, you were talking before about music as a
3: frame and how it signals that oh, this is storytelling, this is art. Um, and uh, made me think of the way that Joe Frank uses music often as just a continuous bed. Mm-hmm. The, and you're talking about the inside and the outside, where he's, he's putting you deep inside. You stay there. Um, and so I wondered if you had any thoughts about the, di- those, the different levels of framing that you could do with music. You, know, you can use a really heavy frame like that that says this is surreal kind of art, and maybe there's kind of a lighter frame that doesn't draw so much
0: attention Yeah, that was interesting. I haven't thought of I mean, I, th- I, I was wondering how, if, how Joe Frank would fit into my little matrix here. I'm not sure he does exactly. Um, if music is the frame, then maybe Joe's frame is a very ornate sort of surrealistic frame where the frame itself is as as, as interesting as the picture. Um, you know, so much of his choices are guided by style and aesthetic. Um, and I guess that's true of all of us, but particularly so with him. Um, I find that I t- I love Joe Frank, but I tune out about midway because the music is just so monotonous and so repetitive. And then when he takes it away and makes a switch, it's always like this profound moment. It's almost like on par with the minimalist composers of the 60s, where they'd repeat some ostinato, and then they make some minute change, and it's like cataclysmic. It's a, maybe maybe he's doing something on that level. I don't know. I was curious, especially with the emergence piece, where
3: it's not just the story of the music and the music, but where you actually take the narration and turn the
0: story into something musical and almost create this thing.
3: As well, which is something that I think you're really good at, and then something that we can maybe start
0: pushing ourselves more towards producers for the kind of musicality in the words, and try to figure out how to best take. I, I don't know, I was just wondering. Yeah, I, was, I, I really wanted to talk about this guy, Herbert Spencer, who has a theory that is exactly what you're talking about, but then um, it just seems so esoteric and everything else was esoteric so I was like alright I'll lose it but let me let me talk about it now then which is um, it. It's, it's a theory that I find fascinating and it, it speaks exactly to what you're saying um, this guy Herbert Spencer 19th century thinker came up with the term survival of the fittest um, he was sort of he had these very bad ideas about how, how uh, natural selection works in, in terms of class and how the rich are rich because they're more evolved and the poor are poor because they're less evolved and that's a terrible idea, but he had a really, really interesting idea about music and where it comes from. And he thought that as you're talking, your voice is going up and down, and there are these little peaks and valleys, and, and you're intoning meaning using little musical relationships. There's rhythm, there's pitch, there's all of these things. Now, if you stripped away the words, stripped away the meaning of those words, and we're just left with the, the pitch pitch content and the rhythm to some degree, if you took that and amplified it, that's what a, that would... Um, give you pure music. And so he thought that music was something that sprung right out of words. And I find it interesting to think about that when you're scoring is that, that the music is something you have to unlock from within the words. It's not something that you add or layer as a bed. It's already there to some degree and you just have to find it. Um, as to how we do it on a sort of nuts and bolts level, I, I, don't, I don't know. It's just, about, it's just about listening to the, to the cadence of the voices I mean, in the case of the Fireflies, we kind of got lucky because Steve did, did that, that thing with his voice, which is zzz, 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 zzz. And we found music that did exactly that, too. And they, they just worked in tandem perfectly. And everything kind of flowed from there. And I don't know. I think that you talk about their but, like, forward, we actually will sometimes think of music in terms of words. And be like, okay, you're going Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's certain people who listen to like hip hop, and they listen to hip hop for the words. And there are certain people, and I've noticed, who listen to hip hop for the percussive nature of the speech. I don't know if that's just a thing that divides people, but I've like music with words has always bothered me because music is so abstract and wonderful, and words can be very flat. I find. So it's like, I, I just tend to, to want to hear the words as themselves as sort of musical devices. Uh, and I think it's something you can train yourself to hear. You just kind of listen, listen to it as, imagine it as, a, as scored on a piece of paper, like written down. And the sort of, uh, the kind of cadence of someone's speech can easily be sort of, evo- or enhanced with music. I don't know that there's a specific way I can answer that question, though.
3: Could you talk a little bit more about this? music taking us out of the story and setting this frame so we have this sort of meta reference but on the other hand what I hear you saying is that the music brings us into the internal story rather than just the plot mm-hmm.
4: and
3: I mean I don't know if there's just more about what you think about that or, or how those two I mean it seems in some ways they might be contradictory impulsive
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So well um, music music in its most purest form is is severed from thought there's no sort of There's no words or think, it doesn't represent anything, it is something, it just kind of embodies a feeling. Um, Walter Mersch calls music um, embodied sound and he calls language encoded sound. So language is about a code that you have to crack in order to get meaning and music, there is no code. Um, In terms of taking you inside of a story, it's about finding the music that evokes the feeling that is present within the words, I guess, and making that match. And I just, I, 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 can't, I can't be too concrete about it because I don't really know how, I mean, I think everyone does it differently and everyone hears things di- that are d- different in music. It isn't exactly a universal language, um, but it's, it's just about listening to the, what someone is saying and, and identifying the points where they're going inside their own heads you know, where they're being, they're, where they're interior, you get a glimpse of that, and then trying to use music to amplify that, you know? It's like putting a megaphone up to that moment.
2: Yeah, I, guess, I guess what I was thinking about was this idea that you say that it brings us out of the story in some degree, mm-hmm. you
3: know,
2: with the framing. Sometimes I do
4: find that very jarring. Right. You know, um, but then on the other hand, it brings us internal. Yeah. It's a fine line,
0: I get I think it's doing two different things. I mean, it's talking maybe even to two different parts of your brain at that point. There's a kind of right hemispheric um, musical processing. Yeah. And then then the left hemisphere is is getting the kind of meaning and decoding the linguistic meanings of it, maybe even the cultural meanings. So maybe it's saying two different things to two different parts of you at that point. I don't know. Would
2: you like, you know, you talked a minute ago about waking up and Would you like... When you woke up in the morning and the NPR was on, would you like to hear music underneath
0: hard news? No, I wouldn't. Not at all. Why? It's not. I, it, that's that to me is is. Um, I mean, it is. There is emotional content. It's an act of manipulation, and it is that always. It's just something we need to be comfortable with. Um, the news, the news is something entirely. It's a different beast, you know. It's not, um, particularly in the morning when you're just waking up, you're so, your brain is wide open to being toyed with. I mean, I regularly have, have dreams that our morning announcer is like in my dreams as a character with me doing stuff because he's, he's the first voice I wake up to, literally. I wouldn't want him to be then, have the added impact of music. <laughs> that just seems too manipulative. I mean, it is, it is manipulation, I guess is what I'm saying. And, and the news should be about as unemotional... Uh, a, a conveyance of information as possible. Um, I
3: I got asked this this morning with the sh- my short doc kind of when when do you know? And I, I
2: didn't really know how to answer, so I'm learning a you When <laughs> when do you know when the music is too much? How do you how do you do? you do, you do
4: as I did where you know put in a little bit a little bit and then stop or do
0: That's actually a a really good question, because that's a good question, because my process, um, I will never play anyone anything after I do a first draft of it. Ellen will tell you this, she's nodding knowingly right now, because I always use too much. Always, always, always. And what ends up happening when I come back from it, I've completely forgotten about the piece, and then I hear it again, and I just think, I go, oh. No, no. And, and then it's a process of subtraction at that point. And it's through the subtractive um, process that, that I get to some kind of balance that makes sense to me. And it's at that point that I offer it, it to other people to listen to. And they'll tell me if it goes too far. It's always, a, it's always something that we grapple with. When is too far? Um, and for that, I don't trust my own ears. I always trust the people around me.
3: Just along those lines, too, can you talk a little about... Being a little too spot on, a little too literal, uh, because in NPR, I think, at, at times in their musical bridges, to do that, take a word that's just been said, have a song. Sometimes that works, sometimes it's a little too cute.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, they do it in the clear, which I think is a big difference. Um, you know, they'll have the the Persian musician on and then play, you know, North Indian music, only because it just seems to be related, and it's okay in a way because they're being. It's an explicit announcement at that point. Um
3: but ten years ago, if I produced a spot about the hot sauce, I would put hot, hot, hot underneath it, you know? Right.
0: Well, what they chose isn't too far away from that, I think. it's yeah. It had a kind of hot, hot, hot thing when it posted. Um, I don't know. I think about that more in terms of sound effects and sound design. Uh, if you go overly literal, it becomes a cartoon. And and I, we try, we do sort of cartoonish, sort of drum, dramatic things on Radio Lab, but we always try and give it a, a musical abstract quality by not being too literal with the sound effects that we choose, choosing sounds that sound kind of like it, taking things out of context. And again, that's a really time consuming process that not everybody probably has the luxury to do. Um, but to get back to your original question, I, I kind of, it kind of bugs me a little bit, the, the sort of the literal use of music after, after pieces. But it's just so literal and it's so out front. Like the cards are on the table, I feel. So, I don't
4: know. Um, do you have general rules about piano music? Like I
2: saw a documentary that about a
4: couple
0: of older women, and they played that requisite set, piano, moving piano music, and it just seemed like you can't win with that. <laughs> I don't use it. I don't, know that, I don't know that it's a rule so much. Um, I don't know. No rules about piano. But if if you're feeling that it's bringing too much other stuff in the door into the room with you, then it's not the right music, you know. If there are too many associations, like your characters, in a way it's unfair, you know. Your characters don't know any of these choices you're about to make, and they don't want to be standing in a crowded room. It's like their story, so it's like you can't fill the room with all these other other people who weren't invited, you know. Uh, can I take it you don't you know, use the music words in your work? No. Just Yeah, just because when, you're, when, you have, when you post it underneath, or when you fade it underneath something, even if the words are real low, uh, you can still hear it. It still fights the narration. It's more of a practical thing, like a, just on a level of coherence. It doesn't work for me. You know, we'll take music that has words in it somewhere, and we'll cut the words out. We'll loop, loop the instrumental passages. I mean, that's pretty standard, I think.
2: those you to something, like song, Would that be
0: too literal for your ears? you to just you to use a bridge from that So there's a, various levels of nuance. I mean, we once used for our War of the Worlds documentary, we used uh, smoke, smoke in Your Eyes, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, uh, uh, which was at the point at which the military people were getting bombarded by the alien pods, and then they were dying because of the smoke inhalation. Um, it was sort of an, it was an inside <laughs> joke, you know? And the instrumental. or The, original? the instrumental. <laughs> like no one, no one actually. There was no words there, because that that would feel like you're hitting people on the head. I don't really want people to. I, I'm not interested in being ironic with the musical choices. You know, I'm interested in actually if it, if, it, if there's an earnest sort of important reason for it to be there, then to to use it for that reason. But at the same time, it gave it made us smile because we cause we knew it. And,
4: um,
0: in the black there. Uh?
4: Yeah, I find it interesting that you you talk and think a lot like a composer, but I haven't heard you once mention actually working with a composer. Do you
0: ever do that? We started to recently. I mean, not with a composer, really. um, We've started to try and commission original stuff, uh, and and that's been a positive thing. Um, There's budgetary limitations on that, um, which hold us back. But uh, that's... I would love to have a... I would love for that to be the only thing we did, frankly. Um, uh, there's all, but there. Are, I, I should be honest too, there's all. There's something very interesting that, that I like in the whole pastiching of all these different snippets of things together. It's a very kind of, it's maybe springing out of DJ culture. And it's a kind of like, a, it feels very like an age old process. Like taking all these tiny little fragments and stitching them together and making some pap- tapestry that works for you. Which feels like a compositional creative act when it's done well. So I don't know. I like stealing other people's stuff, I guess is what I'm saying. If you worry at all about
2: how well your pieces will age, and if so, it seems to me that music is one of the surest things that, that you date a piece. And I don't mean by choosing contemporary music, because you don't strictly do that. But even the, the vibe of choosing the kinds of pieces you choose is something that's probably going to sort of uh, date your
3: piece really quickly.
0: Yeah, but you know, we're not making art here really. I mean, this is, it's like we're trying to communicate to people now and you know, if it sounds great in three years, I'd, I'd be thrilled, but if not, let's take out the music and put something else in and, and re-air it. Um, I don't get too sort of attached to that. I mean, that maybe factors in a little bit into our decisions and that we're not gonna use like a Britney Spears song or anything like that because that'll be old next week. Um, I've heard stuff that I did a couple of years ago, and I, th- I even thought about playing it, which gives me like um, chills of embarrassment for that very reason. So yeah, it is, it is something that, that happens. Well, thanks for listening.)